Hi, listeners of Clear and Vivid. I'm Sarah Chase. I'm the associate producer for Alan Alda. And you may remember last week, we had Katie Kirk here in the office, and she introduced us to a wonderful person called Brian Stevenson. And this week, we're back again because Katie's here with us one more time, and she's going to tell us a little bit about her podcast that she did uh, live, I think it was at 92Y, is that correct, with um, her friend Cheryl Sandberg. And, you know, we're we're all kind of immense fans of Katie's podcast, and you can find that at, at Katie Kirk, and I think that's on Apple Podcasts and Stitcher and everywhere you like to listen to podcasts. Um, and we thought it would be great to share this episode between between Cheryl and her friend, um, because in season one of Clear and Vivid, Alan interviewed a wonderful woman named Kate Bowler, who has stage four colon cancer. And in that episode, if you remember, Kate talked pretty candidly about living with the constant shadow over her and how living with cancer really affected her relationships and the, and the people who deal with her and the, and the concept of loss. Um, so Katie, we chose this conversation between you and Cheryl because it does revolve around the sudden loss of Cheryl's husband and what she learned with and how she dealt with her grief. Uh, and when I know this, is, this was a very special episode between you and Cheryl um, because of that shared experience. Can you tell us a little bit how the, the episode came to be and, and sort of the feelings you were going through as it was coming together? Sure, of course. Uh, first of all, hi, Sarah. And uh, secondly, thank you for sharing this podcast. This was a deeply sort of uh, personal, and I felt very connected to this episode in particular because, like Cheryl, I lost my husband, um, and and so we were talking a lot about grief, a lot about resilience, a lot about the stages you go through when you experience a tremendous, searing, life-shattering loss. And, um, you know, Cheryl had written Plan B, and after her husband, Dave Goldberg, so- died so suddenly— uh, she and I had talked a few times during that process and through the shock and, and through the healing process, and I was very interested in a book dealing with something that people don't really talk about that much, which is grief and loss and how you find your way back. So I was, uh, you know, I felt it was a real privilege to talk to Cheryl and to her co-author, Adam Grant, who now has a podcast of his own. He's a behavioral psychologist who's really made a name for himself talking about highly functioning workplaces. But he was a great, I think, partner for Cheryl as she went on this journey. And, um, you know, I thought she had some very good practical advice for people dealing with loss. Um, I think she went there. She was incredibly honest and open about her experiences, about you know, dealing with small children. Of course, I had small children when my husband died 20 years ago. It was a different kind of loss because it wasn't out of the blue. It was a nine-month battle with colon cancer. And so um, I I think it's a very, um, you know, it's just, it's a very interesting conversation with it, with two public figures Mm -hmm. going very personal. And so hopefully it has some helpful advice for anyone dealing with all kinds of losses and disappointments and setbacks and challenges. And uh, I I know I got a lot out of the conversation also out of reading her book, Plan B. And I think that a lot of the listeners of this podcast will as well. And hopefully Katie will also stick around after the podcast um, 
Uh, many of our listeners know that Alan likes to ask his guests seven quick questions. And well, seven's ho- my, my lucky <laughs> number, Sarah, so. Very good. It's, it's, it's either seven or 11 around here, so. <laughs> <laughs> Which makes me want a Slurpee, but anyway. <laughs> <laughs> well, if, if Katie, if you're so kind, right after this podcast, we'll ask you seven quick questions for seven quick answers. Sounds good. Hi, everyone. Good evening. Nice to see all of you here tonight. I'm really looking forward to this conversation, and I know many of you are as well. So, Cheryl, let me start with you because I want to explain sort of your relationship with Adam. And I know you and Dave got to know Adam. Uh, After Dave had read one of his books, he asked Adam to come speak at his company, SurveyMonkey. And uh, he was incredibly supportive, Adam was, you're getting very emotional, Adam. <laughs> Are you okay? No comment. Okay. Uh, but I think, according to the book, when you all really bonded was when you called Adam after you received a letter that left you utterly devastated. Tell us about that. It was a few weeks after uh, Dave died, and you know, a lot of people, Adam kept saying even before that, you kept saying it gets better but it didn't feel like it would ever get better. I felt like there's a void closing in on me. My brother-in-law, Rob, described it as a boot pushing on his chest. And you've been through it. Uh, grief is really overwhelming. You feel, I felt like I wasn't going to live through a day, a minute, a week. And then I got this letter from a woman who I know she meant well. She was older. She lost her husband. And what she wrote was, I wish I had something to say to you but I don't because it's been years and it really doesn't get much easier. And a friend of mine lost her husband 10 years ago and it doesn't get easier. And I was not strong enough to read that letter. And actually I'm sitting on the stage with the two people I called. I called you, Katie, and you were a dear friend and you told me she she was wrong. Not particularly helpful either. No, it was very helpful. No, 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 I was helpful. She wasn't helpful. She was wrong and unhelpful. But she meant well, you know, and I'm still grateful that she took the time to write. She was trying, and I learned something important after that. And I called Adam, and Adam uh, said she was wrong. And then the next day, when I was at my son's football game, you know, Adam lives in Philadelphia. I live in California. Adam walked in. And I said, what are you doing here? Like, what are you doing here? He was on, like, the football field in Palo Alto. And he said uh, he needed to tell me in person that this wasn't true and that it wasn't going to be true for me. Adam, tell me what else you told Cheryl when you saw her on that football field. I remember, uh, I remember describing the person who wrote the letter, who I don't know, using some words that I can't say on stage tonight. <laughs> uh, but She meant well. I'm sure she did. I thought she was evil. But... <laughs> Uh, what, I think the, the main thing that I said to Cheryl is, look, that, that does not have to be your experience, right? There, there are people who end up, you know, just suffering for years or decades. Um, but this is something that you can, you can gain control over. And the question is really, what are you going to do to build resilience, not, not just for yourself, but also for your children? Um, and that started this conversation that's now been going on for two years. Which really was the genesis for this book. I think the combination of your Facebook post that got, uh, received incredible outpouring and then Adam's sound advice and expertise in this area, you decided you wanted to 
to share your experiences to help other people? Well, we decided to write the book way later, but I think the genesis was the first Adam came to the funeral and everyone else kind of left my house and I asked him to stay because he was my friend who's a psychologist. And I remember looking at him and saying, you know, how do I get my kids through this? What do I do? You know, tell me what to do. And Adam did what was incredibly useful for me is he started summarizing the research and sending me here. There's been a longitudinal study of children who lost parents and had parents who were divorced. Here's what it says you do. And here's what psychologists teach us about grief and resilience and building it. And I mean, anyone, I'm sure there are so many people in this audience who have been through real trauma and real tragedy, and there's a lot to it. But one of the core things is this unbelievable feeling of loss of control. You just have no control. You can't fix it. It can't go away. And knowing there was something you could do, even if it wouldn't fix it entirely, but even take one step to make it a little bit better, was something I desperately needed and, and couldn't find anywhere else. That's why we wrote the book. We're going to talk about some of those things in a moment, but I liked what the rabbi who led Dave's, Dave's funeral told you. He said, lean into the suck. Correct. Which was a very different kind of leaning in, right, Cheryl? <laughs> I looked at him in shock. I said, that wasn't what we meant. (laughs) But what did he mean by that? Well, it was really good advice. Because as much as I was trying to gain some sense of control and take some steps, I also had to know that I couldn't control this. And the grief would come. And it would come for me. And it would come for my children. And I just had to accept those feelings. And when he told me to lean into the suck, it was saying, know the grief will come and stop fighting it. And when I stopped fighting it, it definitely got easier. Because I think what happens is you're grief-stricken and then you're grieving, you're grieving. You're anxious and then you're anxious, you're anxious. And so the feelings pile on and pile on. And when I just accepted, okay, this completely sucks and I am going to have horrible times, horrible moments to this day, accepting those feelings lets me process them and, and they pass more quickly. I know that you write grief is, is a demanding companion. Uh, And Adam, you describe three things in the book that can really keep people from emerging from the abyss, and you call them the three Ps. Can you tell us briefly what those are? Yeah, this is, I think this is the kind of friendship that we all want, right? When you're in severe pain and one of your friends says to you, here, I know it will cheer you up, data! (laughs) It worked for me. (laughs) Yeah, in Cheryl's case, it did. (laughs) Maybe, Maybe the only person where that would be true, but... Um, this is something that's always been resonant for me in, in psychology. This is Marty Seligman's work who said, look, there are these three traps that we all run into when something goes bad in our lives. Uh, the first one is, is personalization, saying this is all my fault. The second one is pervasiveness. This is going to ruin every part of my life. And then the third one is permanence. I'm going to feel this way forever. And when you get into those traps, it's really hard to recover. And so we started talking about, you know, how do you overcome those traps and move forward? It seems to me, Cheryl, that the personalization, the idea that, oh, I should have gotten Dave to eat a healthier diet, or I should have been in the gym that day, or I should have, should have, should have, that you were able to kind of understand that it wasn't your fault pretty quickly. Well, I wish that were the case. I, I really didn't at first. I mean, the initial reports told us that Dave had died falling off an exercise machine, and my brother's a neurosurgeon. And he kept saying to me at increasing volume, that is not true. A man Dave's age did not fall off an exercise machine. He would have broken an arm. Something happened. And then we had got the autopsy back, but that took a while. And we learned he died of a cardiac arrhythmia. So then it was, 
Why didn't I know he had coronary artery disease? Forget his doctors. Why didn't I diagnose it? Did he have chest pains? <laughs> it sounds silly, but I spent a lot of time with doctors and medical records trying to figure out how I blew the most important thing in my life. And then once, you know, my family not so gently pointed out that I wasn't a doctor, and I couldn't have done that. <laughs> Everyone else in my family is a doctor, by the way. They, you know, I blame myself for everything else. My mother gave up her life. She's here with me tonight to stay with me for a month. Uh, people were covering all my client meetings at Facebook. I had lots to blame myself for. And then it was Adam who looked at me and explained personalization and said, here's the thing. If you don't stop blaming yourself, your kids can't recover. Because if you don't recover, they can't recover and he said, you got to stop saying sorry. Oh, that's right. In fact, you kept saying I'm sorry to everyone all the time. Why was that? Because you felt like you were a burden? You felt that you had disrupted their lives? Yeah, a huge burden. I mean, I went back to work, and I was only there the hours my kids were at school, so very limited schedule. I did no travel for six months. I did no dinners. I still do basically no dinners because I have to be home with my children. You know, I'm an only parent now. And so... You know, I had a lot to apologize for. And at home, people were coming over to help me go to sleep. I couldn't walk into my room that I shared with Dave for a very long time by myself. So my friends and sister had a schedule of coming over to literally, like, go to sleep with me as if I was a child. And I just felt terrible all the time. And it was my fault. It was my fault I was such a burden on everyone. Personalization, though, is so common. I think it's the guilt. Why coulda, woulda, shoulda. I have that with Jay. Why didn't I notice he was getting thin? Why didn't I have him get a colonoscopy? I mean, all these things that I think you blame yourself for, I think primarily because guilt, anger, and all these other emotions, Adam, are easier to handle than profound sadness. Yeah, I think they often are. And, you know, I remember Cheryl calling and saying things like, I'm really sorry. And I'm like, who is this? Like, there's, there's no introduction. It's, it's just an apology right, right <laughs> off the bat. <laughs> and I, it's so common, right? It is really hard to deal with, with emotions that you can do nothing about, right? To just say, yeah, you know what? Dave is gone. I can't bring him back. Might be a much harder thing to accept than to say, you know what? Maybe, you know, there's something that I could have done differently. Permanence, though, I know, Cheryl, from reading the book, that that was really the most challenging of the piece for you. The idea that you would never be happy, that the kids would never have a father, all those things that kind of haunted you. How were you able to, to escape from those feelings and that sort of the chains of that particular P? Well, it was people telling me it would get better. You, Katie, were a great friend. And I know we, we were friendly, but not as close before, but you jumped in and called me and said, I've been through this. And you kept telling me it got better and you were more credible than other people because you had been through the same thing. Let's talk for a minute. I just want to, I actually had this question earlier, but got off track a bit because I want to, I want to talk about Dave for a minute. Dave, I think, was so beloved, was such a special person, incredibly generous. I didn't know Dave well. My husband actually, who's here, sat next to him at some Bluebird event and Dave turned to John and said, what are you doing here? And John said, I'm married to Katie Couric. And he said, what are you doing here? She said, I'm married to Cheryl Sandberg. <laughs> <laughs> and they both started laughing, which was so funny. They're very accomplished in their own right, by the way. Um, but, um, you know, I, I don't think I've heard anybody, Cheryl, ever say an unkind word about Dave. What were the qualities that made him so special and so beloved by so many? 
and most of all, you. Yeah, I mean, Dave, Dave was amazing. He was brilliant and funny, but I think the reason he, he is and was so beloved is he was really generous. At the funeral, I've never seen this done. Our friend Xander stood up in his eulogy and looked at the crowd and said, how many people here had their life changed by Dave Goldberg? And like all these hands went up, sea of hands. And to this day, I meet people not every month, every week, who will say not, I met your husband, and he said something interesting. It was Dave changed my life, and here's how. And he really did. He went out of his way for so many people. He was so generous with his, he gave such good advice. Mark Zuckerberg said this of him. Mark said that some people are generous and want to give a lot of advice. And some people give really good advice. But very rarely do those two things come together. (laughs) Because the people who can give the really good advice don't have the time to give a lot of it. And he said Dave was unique. Because Dave gave incredible advice and would put incredible amounts of time in it. And so a lot of people have asked me, you know, kind of, why, why are you writing a book on grief and talking about this? I know I'm doing this. And I'm doing this because if Dave Goldberg were alive, just in the last two years, he would have helped so many people because he did it all the time. And so if option B can help anyone else, even one person, face adversity and find resilience, it extends Dave Goldberg's life because nothing could honor his legacy more. We're going to take a quick break now, but we'll be back with more from Sheryl Sandberg and Adam Grant right after this. On December 14th, 2020, End Blindness will make history by awarding the first ever Sanford and Sue Greenberg Prize to End Blindness. Thirteen pioneering scientists will share $3 million in prizes for their groundbreaking scientific and medical contributions to end blindness permanently and universally. The Greenberg Prize Awards Ceremony, which will stream online, brings together luminaries from arts, sciences, entertainment, and politics, including Art Garfunkel, Margaret Atwood, Al Gore, Michael Bloomberg, and more. The award ceremony will also feature a moving tribute to the late Ruth Bader Ginsburg, a longtime supporter of the end blindness movement including extensive footage of Justice Ginsburg reading from Hello Darkness, My Old Friend, the memoir of End Blindness 2020 co-founder Sanford D. Greenberg. If you want to learn more about End Blindness, you can read about it in Hello Darkness, My Old Friend. And for a special treat, you can listen to the book read by Art Garfunkel. For more, go to SanfordGreenberg.com. Join us on December 14th, 2020 at 7 p.m. Eastern at www.EndBlindness2020.com to be a part of this historic moment. That's endblindness2020.com. And now back to our interview with Sheryl Sandberg and Adam Grant. What motivated you to post that incredibly personal Facebook post and, and really sharing with people in a way, Cheryl, that I don't think you, you know many people would feel comfortable sharing? Um, it was extraordinary, but tell me about the thought process that went into that. It was approaching the 30-day mark after the burial, which in the Jewish tradition is Sheloshim. It's the Jewish period of mourning for a spouse. It was supposed to be over. And I couldn't feel less like it was over. And it wasn't just the grief, but it was the isolation. You know, I used to drop my kids off at school, and everyone would say hi, and I'd walk into work, and everyone would chit-chat. And after Dave died, most of that was gone. Because I think people were so afraid to say the wrong thing that they didn't say anything at all. And, you know, rooms were quiet when I walked in. 
And you could see the quiet around me in the school, you know, kid, kid drop-off line. And so I'd been journaling, and so I wrote a post, which was what I would say if I would say something. And I went to sleep the night before thinking, there's zero chance I'm posting this. This is way too, way too personal. And then I woke up the next morning, and it was so bad that I thought, this can't get better, worse, and it might get better. And even then, I realized I work at Facebook, and I realized I posted it publicly. I didn't really realize how public it would be. I felt like, <laughs> I know. I, I knew I was posting it publicly. I just didn't think so many people would pay attention. I thought the people who would read it were the people who worked at Facebook, the people who were walking by me and not saying hi anymore, and the people at the school. They would read it. That's why I was posting it publicly, not just to my friends. I didn't realize, like, a lot of strangers and news media and stuff would write about it. I know. I'm not always that smart. But I was speaking to the people I was going through my life interacting with, and it really helped. Despite how broad it was, and that was uncomfortable at the time, um, a friend of mine at work told me that she had been driving by my house and not coming in for a month, almost every day. And she started coming in. Strangers, a woman posted from the NICU that she had just lost one of two twins, and she was finding the strength inside her to give the surviving twin a great life. And another woman said, I lost one of two twins. Do you want to talk? And it definitely did not take away any of the grief, but it changed the isolation, and it really changed it in very deep ways. Everyone started talking to me again. People would say, how are you today? Even strangers I passed would say, how are you today? And while I didn't mean to do it that broadly, I'm so glad I did because it really changed it for me. I, I took away the horror of the isolation. Let's talk about that, about the fact that when people are suffering or dealing with tragedy or if they themselves are sick, because I think Jay had this experience, he said being sick like this is the loneliest experience in the world. But also, if you lose someone, people feel very uncomfortable. So, Cheryl, you learned firsthand uh, about the different approaches that you shouldn't do. So why don't you talk about the things that people said or did that made you feel lonelier and more isolated? Because I think this is such an important conversation because I think so many of us, now I don't feel this way because I've been through it, but a lot of people just don't feel comfortable with death or grieving or loss. And it, I think it reminds them of their own mortality, honestly. And they just really want to keep it at arm's length. So let's talk about first what people did that they shouldn't do. And then we'll talk about what people can do right. I did an interview for the book that's coming out in print in a, in a few days, and the first reporter, first question she asked me, she said, so everyone dies, and everyone knows someone who dies, yet we, never, we don't know how to talk about death. Why? It's like such a good question. I don't know. But it's not just death. You want to silence a room, get diagnosed with cancer. Lose a job. Go to prison. Have your father go to prison. Any of these things, they usher this huge elephant kind of walk in behind us, and we don't know what to say. So often we say nothing at all. So the most important, one of the most important things is acknowledge the pain. And I got this wrong before. I used to think if someone was going through something hard, the first time I saw them, I would say, I'm sorry. And then I would never bring it up again because, you know, they should bring it up if they wanted to talk. Right, you're afraid you're going to hurt them or re-traumatize them. Right, I'm going to remind them. You can't remind me Dave died to this day. You can't remind me. If you say I'm sorry for your loss, I'm not like, oh, Dave died. <laughs> I forgot. I didn't forget. I know that. And so when people didn't acknowledge it, the so much better thing to say was, 
I know you're hurting. You may or may not want to talk, but I know you're hurting. Even the second time you see me, or the third month, or the second year. Your kids were uh, seven and 10 when Dave died, and I know you flew home from Mexico. Uh, you write about it in the book, and it's a gut-wrenching and heartbreaking scene. How could it not be when you have to tell your kids that their dad has died? So I mean, you had to do that too. Yeah, but Ellie was six and Carrie was two, so it was a little different, you know? Every situation's different, but yes, I did. I did have to do that, but you know, there was something that they said that night when you were tucking them in that each of them at separate times, I guess, during the course of the day that took your breath away and gave you incredible hope for them. Tell us what those were. I mean, telling your children they will not see their father again is, is horrific. People have asked what was the worst moment of your life. There are many contenders for that prize, um, but this might be it. Um, Carol Geithner is here tonight, and uh, that's her job, is to counsel grieving children. So I had the great, unbelievable fortune of knowing someone who could help me, and she told me what to say, and I tried to follow her advice. Um, and thank God I did, because I, I would just have completely not been prepared. Um, but then my son said, thank you for coming home to tell me yourself. And when I was putting my daughter to bed that night, she said, I'm not just sad for us. I'm sad for Grandma Paula and Uncle Rob because they lost them too. I thought to myself, I have a 7 and a 10-year-old who have just been told they will never see their father again. So it is the worst time of their lives, hopefully. And they can think of anyone else. They are actually capable of thanking me or thinking of their grandma and their uncle. And that gave me so much hope. And in the really hard moments that followed, and there were many, I tried to remember that. And I didn't always. I, I can't say I did. You know, when they would cry, I would fast forward. You know, my son would be crying that his father wasn't going to basketball, and I would remember he would never go to basketball again. My daughter would cry that all the other fathers were at soccer, and I would know he would never be there again. But when I could coming back to the fact that they could think of other people gave me a lot of hope. We always hear, Adam, that children are incredibly resilient when it comes to loss or hardship and setbacks. So how, can, how were you able to help Cheryl help her kids? And how can we all help kids sort of exercise that resiliency muscle, if you will? Well, I, I don't know that it helped, but one of the things that we, we talked about a lot is this idea of mattering that what kids need to know, first and foremost, is that they matter. And mattering has three components. It's basically knowing that other people notice you, care about you, and rely on you. And this is something that I think we all try to do with, with our children as parents every day, but it becomes even more important in the face of tragedy and adversity because you know, they, they just lost somebody who was at the center of their world. You know, we, we talked about what can you do to make sure that your kids still know how much you care about them, but also that you're relying on them, right? That you're going to work through this together. And uh, Cheryl had, I thought, an amazing idea to, to create family rules to help with this. Yeah, my kids and I, following advice Carol had given me, we made family rules. They're in marker. They still hang up there. And in all of the rules about respecting your feelings, it's okay to be angry. It's okay to be happy. It's okay to be jealous of other kids who still have fathers, um, was you can ask for help. 
teaching kids that they are not going through it alone, that we are going through it together is so important. And it's not just important in trauma. This is important every single day as we teach our kids to try to grow up and face whatever adversity they will face. You talk about post-traumatic growth, which is an expression I'd never heard, which I really love. And, and how are they doing now? And uh, are the sad moments a lot more infrequent than they were? Oh, definitely, compared to the beginning. Crying and the screaming, I mean, we couldn't get through an hour. Um, post-traumatic growth is how we go through trauma and we grow. There are ways in which we grow. And one of them is that we gain perspective. The other day, uh, a few weeks ago, my son's basketball team lost the playoffs. And, you know, a lot of the little boys were upset. A couple were crying. And I looked at my son. I said, are you okay? And he goes, Mom. (laughs) (laughs) This is sixth grade basketball. (laughs) I'm fine. They don't know. Now, do I want him to have that perspective? No. But is it perspective? Yes. And being able to celebrate the good and keep the bad in perspective is a very, very valuable lesson. And we've talked a lot, not just about post-traumatic growth, but about pre-traumatic growth. And and this is why we wrote this book. So can we take the lessons that people do learn in trauma and give them to people who don't face the trauma? So gratitude. So it is the most counterintuitive thing in the world to lose your husband and feel more grateful. I thought I should look for positive thoughts. And one day, Adam looked at me and said, you should think about how things could be worse. Now, Adam is literally one of the most brilliant people I've ever met, but I looked at him like, you are a total idiot. My (laughs) husband just died, and nothing could be worse. And he said, well, Dave could have had that cardiac arrhythmia driving your children. And in that moment, I set up, I'm like, I'm good. Kids are alive. I'm fine. Like, I literally was like, I'm okay. And the question is, can we appreciate life? What would I do to give one day and go back and live it with Dave? How would I appreciate that day? I can't have that. But I can appreciate this day. I can appreciate your friendship and Adam's friendship and that we're all here talking about this. My cousin Laura lives in New York and she turned 50 on Valentine's Day. And I called her and I said, Laura, I'm calling to say happy birthday. But I'm also calling to say in case you woke up with that, oh my God, I'm 50 thing. Right? How many people have done that in your life? Oh, my God, I'm turning older. (laughs) I said to her, I said, this is the year Dave Goldberg won't turn 50. Turns out there's two choices, two options. We grow older or we don't. I will never make another joke about growing old again. And if anyone makes it in my presence, even if I don't know them, I kind of turn around. I'm like, don't say that. Because it is a gift. And I appreciate life in a way I never did before this happened. And the question is, can people do that who haven't experienced the trauma? And we believe they can. Let's talk about confidence, because I know, you know, I think probably you're one of the most confident people I know, but your confidence was shaken after Jay, after Jay, after Dave died. Um, why, Why do you think that was the case? Is that sort of because you're a classic overachiever and you didn't feel like you were doing grief well? No, I mean, it was actually one of the more surprising things that happened is that, you know, I I had not experienced grief, but I'd read about it. So when the anger came, I wasn't shocked, even though more of it came than I would have expected. When the sadness came, at least I'd heard of that. But what totally surprised me is it completely destroyed my confidence in every other aspect. And I wrote Lean In. I had, like, studied confidence at work. I was supposed to understand it. 
But, you know, I went back to work and I could barely get through a meeting without crying. So how could I do my job? And I had two children. Parenting is hard before this when I had a great supportive partner. And I don't have the financial challenges so many single moms have, but being a single mother of two grieving children, I had no experience with this, was, was hard. And what I realized is that, you know, Mark Zuckerberg did this. What I needed to build up my confidence wasn't just permission to be a mess, but also reassurance that sometimes I wasn't. So when someone at work before was going through something hard, what I would say to them is just take the pressure off. Do you need time off? Can we take that project off you? Oh, of course you can't think straight with everything you're going through. I did that all with good intentions. But on the other side, when people said that to me, it was proof that I absolutely couldn't do my job. Mark did. You don't have to come in if you don't want to. Take the time you want. But I think you made a good point in that meeting. There's no way I made a good point in that meeting. Trust me. <laughs> that was but so it was nice of the him. kindest thing, and he did it over and over. In other words, you're needed here. And that made you feel right. so much better. So now when people are going through things that are hard, and when you look, it's everywhere, I both give them time off. But if they're there, I go out of my way. If they do anything that I can praise, I praise it. You also are a serious journaler or you do journaling. I've never done journaling. I don't even <laughs> like that word, actually. But, but, but it, is tell, kind of it was incredibly helpful to you through this, this horrible time. But, right? I mean, it was a gift. Tell me why it was so important, Adam, and why you recommend what I never do. <laughs> well, look, when, when most of us sit down to journal, we, you know, we do it for a few minutes, and then we kind of get bored and we move on. When Sheryl Sandberg sits down to write a journal, it's 100,000 words. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I think that you know, the, the impulse to, to journal, which, which a lot of people have during intense experiences, turns out to be a really healthy one. Um, there are hundreds of experiments showing that if you even just write a few times for 15 minutes each about a traumatic experience, that in the short run, in the next few days, you will feel worse. It, it is not fun to relive tragedy. But in the, the weeks and months that follow, not only does your happiness improve, but also your physical health tends to increase. It also can help with, with forming a story, right? finding some coherence and saying, look, I may never feel this happen for a reason, but I'm going to use this experience to find a reason to keep living and to find a deeper sense of purpose. And Cheryl, I thought that was a, a theme that came through in, in a lot of your journal entries. Tell us about writing in that journal, because I know at first, Cheryl, you said all you did was work, take care of the kids, and write. Journal. Yeah. I always wanted to keep a journal. I have boxes of them. I would do five days after New Year's, and that's it. But after Dave died, I, I really, I wrote, and I needed to write. And if I did not write for just a couple days, I felt like I was going to burst. And it was later when Adam and I started doing the research for the book that I saw the research that said how helpful that can be in processing emotions. And then people have asked if the book was hard to write. The personal parts of the book were mostly written for my journal, so I didn't have to write them for the book. So writing the book itself was writing the stories of amazing people who have gone through other forms of hardship, learning the research, and that part was really cathartic. You also have a chapter called, uh, I think it's Taking Back Joy. Is that the name of the chapter? And, and Cheryl, you tell a very uh, poignant story. I think we can all kind of put ourselves in your shoes in some ways, where you were at, uh, at a bat mitzvah, a childhood, the daughter of a childhood friend, and a certain song came on, and there was a certain high school crush there, and tell us what happened next. So it's about four months after Dave died, and a friend and I went onto the dance floor, and I danced. And like a minute later, I just burst into tears. 
You have to say what song it was. It was September by Earth, Wind, and Fire, which I know makes me a little I old. Mean, but I that's just, a good I don't know. Song. I think it creates the creates the yeah. yeah. But I literally kind of collapsed, and he had to kind of take me outside, and I couldn't figure out what was wrong. And what I realized was, oh my god, I was happy for one minute, and then I just felt so guilty. How can I be happy? Even though it was four months later when Dave was gone. And what I realized was that I needed permission. My brother-in-law called me right around then with tears in his voice. He was crying on the phone, and he said, all Dave ever wanted was for you and your children to be happy. Don't take that away from him in death. And I think that when we think about being there for people, and a lot of this book is about what we do for other people who are going through adversity, we think about holding them while they cry, bringing dinner to the hospital, but we forget the other side, helping them come back to work and build up their confidence, giving them permission and experiences that are joyful. Because we all deserve those. And we are hoping that option B gives people permission to feel joy, no matter what's happened to them, no matter what mistakes they've made, uh, no matter what life has handed them, that on the other side, there's laughter, there's friendship, there are moments when we can feel joy and we can notice those and live those. And I think, you know, some of finding joy again was actually taking back things that were joyful before. Um, and actually, Cheryl, I, I, I learned so much from this, the way that you said, look, here are the things that, you know, that, that we used to do with Dave that made us happy and we're not going to lose those. Yeah, we decided after I realized, you know, I think when we think about happiness, we think about the big stuff. We're going to get a promotion, have a baby, take a big trip. Happiness, Adam taught me this. It's the little things every day and noticing them. And so after this experience where I realized this, I started taking things back. We started cheering for the Warriors again. Dave and I and our family, we played Settlers of Catan a lot. Everyone in Silicon Valley does. People out here may not, but if you don't, you should. (laughs) But Dave and I had been playing the last time I saw him, and so that was put away. And I took the board out without saying to my kids and said, who wants to play? And they all said they did. And then uh, we took out the pieces, and Dave was always gray. And my daughter took gray. And my son said, you can't be gray. Daddy was gray. And I said, yes, we can. She wants to be gray. We do that in Dave's honor. And I realized watching TV, playing Scrabble. These were the things I did with Dave that brought me joy. And I wasn't doing any of them because they were going to remind me of Dave. And so I took them back one by one. You also write, Cheryl, that that humor is the third rail of grief. And uh, that, again, you felt a little guilty, but that at times, even early on, humor was so helpful to you. Uh, Even the day of Jay's... uh, God, I kept that Dave's funeral. Sorry. It's okay. And, sorry. And, there's actually something. There's it's actually sort something. of weird, isn't it? The, no, the, the, uh, no, I actually think it's meaningful that you're saying that because I think we all live these experiences over. I find it very touching. Okay. Thank you. <laughs> um, the, the day of, of Dave's I feel funeral. Good. Well, I, you are. Um, and also, you told, told a funny story about when um, I think your sister in law, uh, you all were upstairs in your room crying. And then you, you made a joke. Uh, you guys had very different tastes in movies and television, I think, you and Dave. Yeah. So what did you say to your sister? I, I said, well, at least I don't have to watch Dave's bad TV anymore. <laughs> and then I gasped. And actually, the first joke I made, Adam reminded me I made it because I guess he heard me made it. A friend of mine walked in. He was an ex-boyfriend who now dates men, married a man. And he walked in, and I said, well, this is your fault. 
You were supposed to be straight. We were supposed to get married, and none of this would have happened. <laughs> and gasped. Both of those times. It is a really good joke, right? <laughs> but I gasped. Because joking. But you know what? There's a reason people tell jokes at funerals, and now I know what it is, which is that that joke gives us that one minute of release. And again, we want option B to give people not just permission to grieve and support in grieving, but permission to laugh. Let's talk about, uh, let, let me take some of the questions because I think some of the questions I had are, are being asked by people in the audience. Um, you talk a lot about the need for quality partnership as a career woman and mom and lean in. How has your thinking and reality changed on this since Dave passed? Uh, especially as it relates to your working life. Yeah, I really did think about this. I wrote about different forms of family and lean in, but I also wrote a whole chapter called Make Your Partner a Real Partner. And once I lost Dave, I thought about how that must have been super hard to read if you didn't have a partner. In fact, you write in the book, I, I just didn't get it. I didn't get it. And I did a post on this. And that one I knew I was doing publicly and I wanted to do very publicly for Mother's Day where I said, I didn't get this, and we need to do better for single mothers. 37% of single mothers in this country live in poverty, 40% if you're black or Latina. People do not get the support they need, and understanding that Father's Day is hard for people around you, understanding that someone doesn't have someone to go to the father-daughter dances with, from the very basics of the education and the health care and the food. Huge numbers of people, you've worked on this and I've worked on this, have food insecurity in this, in this country. The basics to the kind of emotional support, I don't think I understood this fully. And I wanted to publicly apologize. Um, you mentioned a single mother, and you know you are a single mother, and obviously a lot of your, your focus has been on being a good mother, but also I think you're very much like I am, Cheryl. You, your parents are lovely, they're here tonight happily married, have been married a long time, and you're, you're what we call the marrying kind, <laughs> just like me. And, uh, <laughs> well, I mean, I, I wanted to be married. It took me a long time, but this is not about me. So, um, but um, tell me about how you, that is very tricky. And I think whether you're divorced or uh, you've, you're a widow or even a widower, and you have children, young children, that is very tough to navigate. So, and you, you write about how women are often judged a lot more harshly than men when they start to kind of go there. Tell us about how you made these decisions and how you were able to help your kids kind of deal with that, because that's another adjustment that's really tough. Yeah. You know, when people date after losing a spouse, it's worth remembering it's not a choice they made. I know who I wanted to spend my life with, and I don't have that choice I was lucky. The people that talked to me about it were actually my mother-in-law and brother-in-law, both of whom said, we want this for you. And by but the way, can I just interject, Cheryl, this, the passage about your mother-in-law, Paula, when you finally had the courage to go through Dave's closet and you found a particularly kind of ratty sweater that he used to wear a lot, a gray sweater. Mm -hmm. And I thought this exchange was so... I just, I, I don't know your mother-in-law, but I love her anyway. Uh, tell us about the conversation you had. It was incredible. Had. So my mother-in-law, Paula, had lost her husband 16 years before she lost one of her two sons. 
And if anyone who's ever been through this, and we've talked about this, the cleaning out of the closet is just one of those things. We dread it. We put it off. Some of us do it sooner. Some of us do it later. I did it a couple months in where I just could not walk by that stuff anymore. Um, I did it with my mother-in-law and brother-in-law, and I broke down in that closet. And I looked at her, and I said, how are you okay? How are you okay? This is your second closet. And she said, I am not, I, am, I did not die. She said, Mel did and Dave did. But I am alive and I will live. And she lives a very full life. She runs a nonprofit. She has friends. She travels. She's with my kids this week and they love being with her. And that is the lesson. The lesson of she knows that she didn't die. She didn't just say, though. She said, I'm alive and you're alive and you will remarry. She said that. She said, one day you'll remarry, and I will be there. And it was permission to date. And I didn't do it for months and months and months. I mean, it was way early. But the fact that it came from her, but she lost someone. And I think, again, as we think about supporting people, we dry their tears, we help them get through the hard stuff, but give them permission and support to date, particularly if they're a woman and they want to. Help them find laughter, even if it's about death. These are the things that make us human. These are the moments where we find our humanity and we find the joy. I knew early on, people told me that, and you told me this, that children feel guilty. Children feel guilty. It was one of the things Carol Geithner said. When they've lost a parent, they feel guilty being happy. So I told my kids right away, it was in our family rules, daddy would want you to be happy but it's hard to give that permission to yourself. On what would have been Dave's birthday after he died, I went to his grave with um, my siblings and my parents and Paula. And I just looked at the grave and it was such the most obvious basic lesson, but we are all headed there. Absolutely, we all die. And as I looked at all the tombstones, Jewish graves tend to be pretty crowded so you can see the dates all there. Um, you know, some were young, some, some were older, and those differences almost seemed not as significant. But you have that feeling of, I only have so many days left. And I hope everyone here walks out of here and just lives a little bit more. I always say everyone's terminal. <laughs> you know, lovely, positive thought. <laughs> Um, I'm just looking through some other audience questions. Um, oh, do you think women are judged more harshly when they move on after a loss? I know that online they had some few choice words for you when word got out that you were seeing someone. And I know that you brought a date to a family wedding. And somebody at, at the wedding said, I'm so glad you're finally over Dave's death. Yeah. I think one of the biggest lessons for me is that all of these things exist together. You can love someone after they die. You still love Jay. I still love Dave. I always will. You can have children who play one minute and cry the next. That because of the joy, we have the sadness. Because of the sadness, we have the joy. And we actually wouldn't have one without the other. So yes, we are all terminal. And in knowing that our lives are limited is where we can try to live each day to its fullest. 
How does, this was a question I actually asked you both on the phone and someone helpfully from the audience asked it. Um, how does a shocking death like Dave's differ from a loss that's anticipated, anticipated due to illness, for example? Well, we have two living examples of those situations. My husband was diagnosed with cancer and died nine months later. And you can imagine how excruciating that was, but not shocking. Yours was shocking and excruciating. Um, but, but how do people manage these different situations? And how, do, how are they different? Katie, I'd, I'd like to hear you comment a little bit more on what your experience was like. I will say, you know, people assume that it's going to be easier when you have time to say goodbye. And it's very often not the case, right? You, you never really want to say goodbye to someone you love. And yes, it's true that the, the shock and the immediate despair might be less when you had a chance to prepare for it. But more often than not, nothing can really prepare you for what it's like to have someone you love gone forever. And so I, I actually think the, the two end up being much more similar than, than people let on. But what, what would your take be? Well, I mean, I think they're both horrendous and horrific. I think that, I mean, for me, I was living with a vice around my heart for nine months and taking care of my kids. But I think I relate so much to so much, you know, of the things that Cheryl writes in this book. But it is excruciatingly painful to see someone you love uh, you know, waste away and get sicker and sicker. And I know Jay said to me, this is no way to live. And so that has its own form of heartbreak, I think. Uh, Someone wrote, thank you for being here and for the candid conversation. Her question is, how has being vulnerable, honest, and open with friends helped in this process? What, and really with everyone, Cheryl, not just your friends, what has it changed or taught you? I mean, the most important thing this has done for me is one of the ways we have post-traumatic growth is we find meaning. And doing this and forming, we formed optionb.org if people want to come check it out. It's a community. There are already lots of people in it. We launched last week um, in groups around grief and loss and hate and violence and sexual assault and divorce. And trying to find ways to do good. And I'm not the only person that did this. You work on cancer for a reason, right? You've raised so much money and so much awareness. I remember uh, your colonoscopy on TV. No, I'm serious. Thank you. <laughs> but that was before You're I welcome. knew you. But no, let's talk about that. That was incredibly brave. Well, And what you did is got a whole lot of people to go you were trying to save lives, and you were hurting where you were hurt. Um, a friend of my mom's, her son, died by suicide a few years ago. And she joined one of the groups on optionb.org, and she found herself connected to a man who was thinking of committing suicide. And she felt like she really helped him. And she said it's the very first time she feels like anything good has come from her son's death. And so... I think we try to find meaning. And these option B groups that you're establishing, really kind of like the lean-in community in a way, you're, you're trying to connect people to help each other. Is that the primary goal of, of what you're going to do beyond the book itself? Yeah, the idea is if you go to optionb.org, there's resources, educational materials. Adam and a whole bunch of experts did a great job uh, curating stuff that might help but also helping people join groups where they can connect, connect with each other. 
around these issues. And it is trying to kick lots of elephants out of lots of rooms. And we want to help bring people together to support each other. I think the overwhelming message of this book is we're a lot more resilient than we think we are. But there are things that we can do for ourselves and for other people who are hurting that will really allow that resilience to bloom. Is that an accurate sort of description of it? I wish we had written it that, <laughs> that eloquently. Thanks, you, can, you can steal that, Adam. Done. I, I think it's a beautiful description. And yeah, I mean, I think we, we walked away just amazed by the capacity of the human spirit to persevere. And, you know, we, we wanted to try to explain to people how that happens and how we can help others do it. And, well, since earlier I asked you about Dave, uh, when John and I read the book, uh, he, he mentioned the conclusion to your eulogy to Dave, which was just so wonderful. And I think it encapsulates all the qualities that you really need to become whole and healthy again. Um, and so I asked you if you would mind reading it sort of as we close, because I think it's nice to remember Dave and um, I think the message really reflects what you were trying to say in this book. So, so I'm, are you Katie, okay? Yeah, I'm going to try. Katie mentioned this right before, so I'm going to do, gonna you do my best. Do you need reading glasses? I, not yet, okay. but I will. <laughs> <laughs> it's close. You'll notice I'm not going to hold the book here. I'm holding it here. Um, so this is the end of the book, and this is uh, my eulogy, the end of my eulogy. Dave, I have a few promises I make to you today. I promise I will raise your children as Vikings fans, even though I know nothing about football and I'm pretty sure that team never wins. (laughs) I promise to take them to Warriors games and pay attention enough to cheer only when the Warriors score. I promise to let our son continue to play online poker, even though you let him start at eight years old. And most fathers would have discussed with the mother whether it was appropriate for such a young child to play online poker in the first place. (laughs) And to our daughter, when you are eight, but not one minute before, you can play online poker too. Dave, I promise to raise your children so that they know who you were. And everyone here can help me do that by sharing your stories with us. And Dave, I will raise your children so that they know what you wanted for them and that you love them more than anything in the world. Dave, I promise to try to live a life that would make you proud. A life of doing my best, being the friend you were to our friends, following your example and trying to make the world a better place, and always but always cherishing your memory and loving our family. Today we will put the love of my life to rest, but we will bury only his body. His spirit, his soul, his amazing ability to give is still with all of us. I feel it in the stories people are sharing of how he touched their lives. I see it in the eyes of our family and friends, and above all, it is in the spirit and resilience of our children. Things will never be the same, but the world is better for the years Dave Goldberg lived. Well, 
I was going to say, Cheryl, I don't know how well you're doing on the Vikings and Warriors part, but I think you're doing pretty damn well on all those other things. Cheryl and Adam, thank you both so much for coming to the 92nd Street Y and talking to us. Katie, that was absolutely an amazing podcast uh, and a conversation with Cheryl and, and Adam. Um, and again, Alan, Alan's on vacation, so he sent me with a homework assignment, which is to ask you his seven quick questions for isn't seven quick like, answers. Isn't that like Alan? I know. Is, <laughs> I, I get a text from somewhere in, in Germany saying, hey, well, by <laughs> I got a the job way, for you. Can I just take this opportunity to say he's one of the greatest human beings ever, Alan Alda? He will, he will very humbly, I think, say you are, in fact, the greatest human <laughs> no, being. No, 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 no. I didn't say that. To, I wasn't fishing for a compliment. I just, I think he's just a, an, an extraordinary human being, and I, I love him, and I just I, I respect him so much. So I'm happy, happy to answer his questions posed by you, Sarah. Okay. <laughs> so question number one, what do you wish you really understood <sighs> what do I wish I really understood? The meaning of life? Not really, because I kind of understand that, possibly. I guess I wish right now I really understood. I, I wish I understood how we could get people to talk and to empathize and to have shared experience and to not hate so much and to not come to every topic with so much anger. I wish we could appeal not to our our better angels, but to our higher intellect, and that we could exchange ideas and make some progress on some very thorny issues. Beautifully said. Uh, what do you wish other people understood about you? Mm. I've always sort of wanted wanted people to understand that that you can't kind of compartmentalize people. You cannot put them in a box. You can't stereotype them. And that we're all very complex, multidimensional human beings. And I've always felt that sometimes my friendly, outgoing personality has um, obscured the fact that I actually um, you know, intelligent and intellectually curious and like to talk about ideas and issues and that <laughs> I sound like Bette Midler in Beaches when she said, I'm deep, I'm very deep, but that there's a lot more to me than meets the eye, I guess. I think that's apparent by anyone who's ever been in the same room with you. What's the strangest question someone has ever asked you? Mm, the strangest question. Are you Renee Fleming? Because apparently we look somewhat alike. And then it was followed by, I loved your performance at Lincoln Center. So I did not dissuade them of the notion. I just said, thank you. You were so great in Carousel, too. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. <laughs> how how do you stop a compulsive talker? Uh, I I interrupt them. <laughs> 
I basically, uh, I, and then I finally get through and I just don't <laughs> stop. And I'll hold up my finger or uh, I'll just interject or I'll just flat out rudely interrupt. <laughs> That's one way to do it. Uh, is there anyone you just can't feel empathy for? Um, I'm naturally a very empathetic person. I do try to understand people's motives or life experiences that may have brought them to a place where they feel certain things or do certain things. But I do have, I think I would have a hard time being empathetic to white supremacists, racists, uh, misogynists, all those bad ISTs (laughs) that uh, seem to be keeping our country from moving forward. How do you like to deliver bad news? In person, on the phone, or by carrier pigeon? (laughs) Uh, In person. I think that's the only way to deliver bad news, if at all possible, because, um, I mean, I think that's the human thing to do. And the last question, what, if anything, would make you end a friendship? Hmm. What if anything would make me into friendship? I guess, I guess I'd into friendship if someone intentionally hurt me, or someone I love, or betrayed a deep confidence. Um, I think trust is at the core of all friendships, and if someone uh, betrays a trust and or proves that they were not, they weren't worth trusting in the first place. I think that. You know, I probably would end that friendship. We'd like to thank Katie and her production team for letting us share this episode of her podcast on Clear and Vivid while Alan's away on a well-deserved vacation. You can find all the latest episodes of Katie's podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and wherever you like to listen. It's called Just Asking with Katie Couric and Brian Goldsmith. Next week on Clear and Vivid, we'll be taking an unusual peek behind the scenes with Alan and the rest of the Clear and Vivid production team. We had quite a bit of fun turning the tables on Alan, and we're going to ask him a few questions for a change. And remember that Season 2 of Clear and Vivid with Alan Alda will return Tuesday, November 13th. Alan's first guest will be actor and activist Michael J. Fox. It's a special interview, and you won't want to miss this one. Till then, bye-bye.